All right, well, if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be hanging out in John chapter 3 this morning, uh, verses 1 through 15. Uh, Next week, we are going to be studying what is arguably the most famous scripture in all the Bible, John 3.16. I'm willing to bet most of us in here could do a pretty good job reciting it from memory. Uh, And there's a lot in there to spend time with, and I think we're going to give pretty much an entire morning to just that verse. But these are, interestingly, these are the 15 verses that precede it. And actually, John 3.16, which we're going to spend just a little time in this morning, but which we're going to spend a lot of time in next week, is actually part of this conversation between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. I'm going to go ahead and read the first 15 verses uh, of chapter 3, which, co- uh, which detail for us uh, the beginning of that conversation. Beginning at verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, And bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Uh, Like I said, next week we're going to be spending time in that verse, John 3, 16, which is, for good reasons, uh, probably one of the most well-known, famous scripture verses, because it's with such a great economy of language, with great uh, precision, it it condenses the gospel hope down into a very few words. So it's a very helpful handle, a summary of our gospel hope, John 3.16. But we're going to back up and spend time in these first 15 verses because this really is the context for when Jesus opened his mouth and spoke those powerfully important words that we all know so well from John 3.16. There are a lot of things in the Bible that if you didn't know them, you could still be saved. All of God's words in the Bible are good. 
They're all helpful and useful. They're all beautiful and excellent. But they are not all equally critical when it comes to the issue of salvation. And now the reason I point that out is because the third chapter of John is not that kind of scripture passage. The verses we're going to study this morning are not gravy on the potato. They are the potato. This chapter contains information that is absolutely essential to know and understand for our salvation. Jesus will say things that if we were ignorant of their meaning, we could never get to heaven. And he says as much in verses 3 and 5. Backing up there, he says, truly, truly, and then he makes a statement, and then he says he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in verse 5, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The first, 14, for the first 15 verses of the chapter detail for us a critically important conversation between Jesus and a member of the Jewish religious leadership, the Pharisees. He's a man named Nicodemus. And as we will see, Nicodemus' first steps toward Jesus were kind of timid. They're wavering and uncertain. But he would in time, Scripture allows us to see this, he would in time become a more resolute follower of Jesus. And I, I take heart in this because I, I, I think we should never judge a Christian's beginning in the faith with what they will end up becoming. Uh, this man begins in a very timid way, but he becomes an absolute lion of a man for the faith as Scripture progresses, specifically as the Gospel of John progresses. For example, in chapter 7, Nicodemus will stand up in the presence of his fellow Pharisees and he will defend Jesus in the midst of the Sanhedrin. It says in chapter 7, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, making reference to this chapter, and who was one of them. In other words, he's a Christian. He's a follower of Jesus, even though he's a Pharisee. Said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And his fellow Pharisees turn on him and they said, are you from Galilee too? <laughs> in other words, you're one of them. And then in John 19, after Jesus' crucifixion, Nic Nicodemus will join with Joseph and of Arimathea to take Jesus' body down from the cross and bury his body in Jesus' tomb. We read in John 19, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. That's a significant amount of money. So he sacrificed his reputation in the public place of the Sanhedrin. He's sacrificing his wealth. He is a fully committed follower of Jesus by the time we get to the end of the Gospel of John. But here, when we're first introduced to this man, he comes by night. And that's coming timidly, furtively, under cover of night, really, so as not to be seen. And I think he came secretly because he wanted to ask Jesus questions without having to answer any questions himself. I, I don't think he was necessarily physically afraid of his fellow Pharisees or maybe even afraid that he would lose his standing or his job or anything like that. I just think he's like, ah, oh, that would be weird if they would ask me lots of questions. They would wonder what was going on. So he kind of comes by night, not wanting to risk too much socially. Now, throughout the Bible, and we all know this if we've been in the church for any amount of time, Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees, how would you describe those interactions? 
well, they're contentious, sometimes violently so. These, uh, these guys don't like Jesus, and that's evident every time we read about their interactions. And so we read about a Pharisee coming to Jesus, and if we're not familiar with the story of Nicodemus, we instantly go, oh, here it comes. Here comes another one of those contentious interactions. But this time is different. Nicodemus is a genuine truth seeker, and he has humility in great enough measure to celebrate what he sees God doing through Jesus, rather than just feeling jealous of him. He begins very tactfully and humbly by telling Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, as a Pharisee, and this is something Jesus will point out himself in just a few verses, Nicodemus is himself a teacher of the people, a teacher of the law. But he humbly refers to Jesus as rabbi or teacher. Even though Jesus did not graduate from any of their schools, he didn't sit under the teaching of any exalted Jewish leader or teacher. He just kind of came out of nowhere. And, but even here, Nicodemus, in all humility, says, calls him rabbi and says, I know you're a teacher come from God. In other words, I'm here, tell me what you want to say. <laughs> this is a very humble thing for Nicodemus to say to this nobody of a teacher who just kind of came out of the wilderness and started gaining a following. <clears throat> but he says something here that's significant but easy to miss. He doesn't say, I know that you're a teacher come from God. He says, we know. Now, that's fascinating to me. It's that word, we, that interests me. He comes to Jesus alone, but he presents himself as representing the opinion of his group. I think he means his group, the Pharisees. We know. We see. And maybe this was even the consensus view among the Pharisees at that early date. I imagine when the Pharisees sat around, I don't know if they had water coolers back then or coffee or what they did, but they're sitting around in their fancy robes and they're, hey, what about this Jesus guy? Man, the stuff he's doing, I think he's from God. That's hard to argue with. You know, I don't know what they talked about in their informal gatherings, in their circles, but when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he says, we know that you're from God because nobody else could do these things. This statement from a Pharisee that we know you're from God is, I think, significant given how strongly they would oppose Jesus later in his ministry. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. I don't think it's the main point of this passage, and so really I'd be wasting your time perhaps if we lingered on it for too long. But I do think it's worth meditating on for a moment because of how big the role these, plays will, these guys will play in John's gospel as Jesus' is, is antagonists. I'm struggling to speak English today. <laughs> Given Nicodemus' statement, we might wonder if the Pharisees' view of Jesus changed over time. Maybe early on, they thought he might be from God, but then they saw some stuff, they heard some stuff, and they concluded differently. Is that what happens with the Pharisees? I don't think so. Here's what I think actually happens with the Pharisees, and I see a very interesting parallel between this statement we know and something we saw during our study of the life of David and King Saul. 
Do you remember back? You probably don't. Like I said, I know you guys all have all my sermons memorized, every point. But in 1 Samuel 18, it said of Saul, this is early on in his problems with David. He's just beginning to feel jealous of David. It says, but when Saul saw and understood that the Lord was with David, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Okay, he saw He understood, and then he responds by being afraid of that person and more opposed. Interesting. You see, I think when the Pharisees say, we know he's from God, don't automatically conclude that that would then mean in their hearts that they would submit to that. Saul saw, Saul understood, and Saul was afraid and violently opposed. So it is with these men. These men know that what Jesus is doing could only be accomplished if he was working with divine power. But they hate him for it. You see, more than wanting to see God move with power, they want him to move with power through them. They hate the idea that he would do it through anyone else. And I think we are really witnessing something very similar in the Pharisees, who, according to Nicodemus, know that Jesus is from God. So it's not that their opinion of Jesus will change over time. It's just that they love their exalted position more than they love God or the people that he would have them serve. And at some point, their overmastering love of self motivates them to move in opposition to God himself and their own consciences. Even at this early date in Jesus' public ministry, they are seeing and understanding that their replacement is there in the person of Jesus. And their hate-filled opposition to Jesus that we will see as we move deeper into the John's Gospel is a conscious movement against God. They know. Nicodemus lets us in on the secret. (laughs) And it seems worse and more tragic for these men to see Jesus in some measure correctly and still reject him than if they had completely misunderstood him and his significance. This is yet another proof that the religious devotion of the Pharisees was, like the kingship of Saul, motivated by a high and prideful concern for their own glory, their high, exalted place among the people, their authority. And Jesus challenged all that. They are the polar opposite of the humility we see in John the Baptist. Back in our study of the life of David, we saw that both Saul and Jonathan understood that the Lord was with David, but of course they respond differently to that news. And it's very similar how both John the Baptist and the Pharisees recognize that Jesus is from God. They have a place of standing, power, authority among the people, One of them steps aside and gives Jesus center stage. That's like Jonathan. And one of them, like Saul, holds on with a white-knuckle grip, basically clinging to a cinder block and jumping into the sea. It's just bad that they're clinging on to it so badly. It's going to drown them. But really, before we move on from this thought, this is really the battle that rages inside the heart of everyone. Everyone who sees and understands Jesus correctly. 
The dilemma of Saul or the Pharisees is not so foreign to anyone this morning who have awakened to a realization of who Jesus is and the claims he has made on their lives. Do you remember when the wise men ride into Jerusalem and they tell Herod what? We are looking for him who has been born king of the Jews. Who was king of the Jews? Herod. (laughs) You're looking for who? He who was born king of the Jews? That's me. And so when the wise men make that announcement, you guys weren't expecting a Christmas message this morning, but here it is. His heart was troubled because he's sitting on that throne. And whenever somebody hears that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus came into the world not to be a part of your life, but to be Lord of your life, that he is the only way, he is the way, the truth, the life. There is no other way to the Father but through him. He's king. Well, when you first hear that news, you are sitting on the throne of your heart. You're occupying that space to which Jesus is entitled. Jesus is Lord. He is king over you. And the Pharisees see, Saul saw, Herod saw. Now how will we respond? This is really the challenge, I think, in front of everybody who understands and sees Jesus correctly. Will I give him his place? Or will I cling to it with a white-knuckle grip? and so commit a form of suicide. What will you do with Jesus? Who do you say that he is? What is his significance? This is the great question of each of our souls, and according to God's word, how we answer those questions will matter eternally. Maybe you're here this morning, and Jesus is not the king of your life. He's not yet sitting on the throne of your heart. And when you hear the news that Jesus has come into the world to reign as Lord over your life, when you hear that your replacement is at hand, that might trouble you as it troubled the Pharisees or Saul or Herod because you're the Lord of your life right now. Well, Nicodemus, for his part, is different. Nicodemus shows us the better way. He shows us that the greatest joy is found in surrendering that the greatest victory is found in being defeated by Jesus. Nicodemus, for his part, after calling Jesus rabbi and saying that the miracles that Jesus was performing had authenticated Jesus in his view as a teacher sent from God and was therefore someone who he should listen to, gets kind of an unusual answer from Jesus. At first, Jesus' answer sounds kind of like a non sequitur. In that it doesn't seem at first to logically follow or flow from what Nicodemus had said. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, you're obviously a teacher sent from God. We've seen all the stuff you're doing. Nobody who's not from God could be doing that kind of stuff. And then Jesus turns to him and says, truly, truly, I tell you, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. And it sounds like a complete non sequitur. Like it's completely unrelated. What is the connection between what Nicodemus said and Jesus' answer? I don't think it is a non sequitur. We have to dig a little bit here to see the flow of logic in what Jesus is saying and giving this response. When we examine this exchange closely, we see that Nicodemus began by telling Jesus that he knows some things about Jesus. 
He makes a claim to really some great knowledge. And Jesus instantly replies that only someone who is born again can see or know. That's what he says here. I think this answer is a challenge to Nicodemus' claim that he knows some things about Jesus. Jesus instantly turns and says, unless you're born again, you will never truly grasp who I am and the significance of my coming into the world. You think you know me. You have not yet begun. Or maybe you're only just beginning. He will never be able to know or see what is most needed about Jesus' identity unless he is regenerated from within. He's born again. He's given the gift of the Holy Spirit to see and understand. And we instantly see evidence of how limited is the darkened view of unregenerate man when he answers with some follow-up questions. We see the, 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 the finite horizon of what Nicodemus can grasp and understand in the flesh with the questions that he asks as a follow-up. Jesus says, you have to be born again. What does he say? How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter in a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's thinking in purely in terms of what's physically possible, not spiritually true. And this reminds me of Jesus' exchange with the Pharisees from last week. Do you remember after cleansing the temple, the cops show up and they say to Jesus, show us a sign that shows you can be doing these kinds of things? And Jesus says to them, I'll show you a sign. I'll tell you what, destroy the temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. And how do they answer? They answer in a way that shows they're not speaking a language about spiritual realities, but physical, mortar and brick, stacking stones on top of one another. They say it's taken 46 years to build the temple, and we're gonna, you're going to rebuild it in three days. Ridiculous. Very similar to what Nicodemus does here. You must be born again. How's that possible? I'm an old man. How can I go back into my mom's womb and be born again? That's weird. That can't happen. What are you talking about? It's very similar. It's like, again, like a conversation with Amelia Bedelia. Jesus means one thing, and to those who have the Holy Spirit within us, we obviously quickly grasp his meaning. We see where he's going with this. But Nicodemus is only capable of understanding this in physical terms. This is all new lingo to him. He doesn't get it. But I think this answer, that he has to be born again, is especially meaningful given who Nicodemus is. He's a Pharisee, which means he's a very observant, religious practitioner of Judaism. And of course, what is a, a Jew's hope for salvation and standing with God? It's that they are born in natural descent from Abraham. Abraham's promises belong to them by natural descent. They're born in the line and lineage of Abraham, and so they are automatically one of God's people. They have standing with God by virtue of their birth, their natural birth. So this is a very provocative, maybe even confrontational thing that Jesus says to Nicodemus. He's saying to a person, and this might be hard for us if we're not steeped in Judaism, as Nicodemus was, to grasp the, the weight of this conversation in this moment. But he is saying to Nicodemus, your birth is not going to cut it. Your claim to descendancy from Abraham is not sufficient for your salvation with God.
And that would have been a, a, a difficult thing for Nicodemus to swallow. In verse 3, Jesus speaks about the impossibility of seeing without being born again. And in verse 5, he speaks of the impossibility of entering without being born again. As we move down to verse 5, in verse 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5, he answers these silly questions about how can an old man be born again by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Cannot see, cannot enter. You'll never be able to grasp and know spiritual truths about the gospel. You'll never be able to enter the kingdom of God. You'll never enter into the promises unless you're born again. Rebirth is a metaphor of the initial step in salvation. And of course, Jesus was not speaking about a physical rebirth, but a spiritual one. What Jesus is talking about is the need for a new beginning. Human beings had a beginning in Adam, but that beginning was ruined through sin. And what we need now is a new start in which the old has passed away and the new has come. And again, I think that this talk about a, a new birth would have been especially provocative and, and confrontational to an observant Jew like Nicodemus who placed his hope on his descent from Abraham. I think this is very similar to the emotional force behind the baptism of John the Baptist. Baptism among the Jews at that time was practiced to initiate Gentile believers into the faith. If a Gentile converted to Judaism, they would be baptized into Judaism. It was called a proselyte baptism. And so essentially what John the Baptist was doing in his ministry is he was going around saying to people, your sin has cut you off from God to such an extent that it's as if you were not one of God's people at all. You have to be baptized back into the community of faith. He's saying this to Jews who believe that they were born into the community of faith. They were born into God's favor. They were descendants of Abraham. And so John the Baptist in his ministry was saying, you're cut off. You're far from God. You need to be baptized. You need to repent of your sins and be baptized back into God's favor, back into the community of faith. And John, and John the Baptist and Jesus here are speaking with the same kind of emotional force to Nicodemus, to people, to observant practitioners of Judaism. The metaphor of rebirth also points out that regeneration is God's work and not the work of sinful human beings. I think if there's anything in this chapter that you're going to walk away with, and you're going to forget 99% of everything I say <laughs> if we walk out of here. I can't even remember what I had for dinner last night. I don't know. <laughs> I, know and I know we don't hold on to everything, but if you walk away from John chapter 3 with one thing, let it be this, that what Jesus says here is that your salvation is born out of a decisive work of God's will not yours. That, that is definitely here. When we talk about birth, I was not there, thankfully, when Barry and Janet Tate decided to bring me into the world, right? I had no part in that conversation. It was not by my will that I was born. Somebody else willed and acted to bring me into existence, and when Jesus talks about you being born again, 
He is saying, you did not will yourself into a place of understanding. You, you were created. You were or acted upon. You're not an actor. You weren't part of the conversation. You're born again. And he'll, he'll back this up later when he's talking about the wind, right? The wind just c- comes, and it, you don't know where it comes from or where it's going to go, but it's invisible. It, it just kind of shows up. It's got a, a will all its own, but it shows up, and it has its effect. A, a, a reed just standing there cannot decide all on its own, of its own volition, to do this. <laughs> a reed can't do that. The wind acts upon it, and it moves. Jesus is saying here that the divine prerogative is at work in your rebirth. And this is, again, a a very confrontational, provocative thing to say to a Pharisee who, in his religious practice, his exercise, believed that he had the ability to work himself into God's favor. The the whole scheme is works-based that Nicodemus had been brought up under and spiritually formed by. That if you are good and you belong to God's favor, you get out there and you work for it. You keep the commands. You do it all. And God will owe you his favor. And Jesus here turns that all in his head and says, you're helpless. You're helpless. And unless you're born again, you can't see, you can't enter. You can't get there in the way you're accustomed to approaching God. The process by which we were all born was initiated and seen through by our parents. No person has ever willed themselves into existence, physically speaking. And the same is true for those who have been born again. This miracle is owing entirely to a decisive act of God's will. The very first reference in John's gospel to this idea of being born again is not here in chapter 3, but it's back in chapter 1. Back in chapter 1, verse 12, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Three negatives there, he says. I'm going to read them again who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Each of these three negatives, not of blood, not the will of the flesh, not the will of man, is important. Not of blood means, again, that regeneration is not by virtue of our physical birth. Some people were born into Christian families. You had awesome parents so what? Right? You, you have to make the decision personally. You have to personally embrace Jesus. It doesn't matter that you were born into a Christian context or that you were raised in a great Christian church or that you belong to a Christian, quote, nation. If you are culturally Christian, and that is all, you have no personal relationship with Jesus, it doesn't matter the circumstances of your birth if you have never embraced Jesus personally. And again, this is particularly powerful when John first wrote this into the milieu of Judaism, who really did believe in a way that's hard for us to grasp, given how we've been spiritually formed. They really did believe that their salvation rested on their natural descent from Abraham. 
And then he says, nor of the will of the flesh. This is a bit, I think this is the trickiest of the three. I had to wrestle with this one some this week. How does the will of the flesh differ from the will of man? Well, in the New Testament, the word flesh signifies typically, when it's most often used in the Bible by the biblical authors, it signifies our natural appetites, our sinful, not our sinful necessarily, our sensual or emotional desires. And so when Jesus says that you can't be born again by the will of the flesh, I think he is saying that we cannot be led by our fallen appetites to a place where we would naturally desire the way of salvation. There is no point where our sinful self-interest overlaps with the requirements of God. If our fallen natural inclinations were a road, what this is saying is that that road nowhere intersects with another road that could take us to God. They just go off in different directions. And your fallen natural appetites are not designed to draw you to God at all. And then he says this, nor of the will of man. And here he's not talking about our feelings, our appetites, our desires, our emotions, any of that. He's talking about volitional will. There are many things we do contrary to our appetites because we believe in our minds it will do us some good. For example, if, if I uh, decided to diet, it would mean turning off certain desires I had, correct? And I would just by sheer dent of volitional will say no to all those things I love to eat so that I could attain some level of physical fitness or health. And so when it says here, nor the will of man, Jesus is saying you weren't born by natural descent, your desires can't get you there, and neither can you just roll up your sleeves, get it done, volitional will. You can't grasp with your mind something to go after unless God gives it to you. And we really admire the spirit in people, by the way. A person might work doggedly, go to night school, get a better job, eventually make a great success of their life. They might go into politics, go to Congress. They might even become president of the United States. And everyone would praise such a person because of what they had attained. But none of what they had attained could change the fact of who they were born to. If I became emperor of the world, it wouldn't change that I was still the son of Barry and Janet Tate. And what Jesus is saying is that you must be born again. You can't work your way towards that. It's of God. The image of rebirth also helps us understand what happens when God takes the initiative in salvation. Nicodemus came to Jesus to talk about spiritual reality, but Jesus replied by saying that no one can understand, much less enter into those spiritual realities unless they're born again. And now having identified to Nicodemus the source of the new birth, Jesus then talks of how this new birth or regeneration occurs. He says, truly, truly, I'm in verse 5 here, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. 
The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Well, what does it mean to be born of the water and Spirit? I, I, th I think my, my humble opinion is this. Water refers to cleansing. In becoming a Christian, something has to be taken away. We have sin. We've sinned. We were born in sin. And in order to be saved, that sin has to be taken away. And I think that water is representative of that here symbolically. Uh, baptism, I don't think this is an overt command that you must be baptized to be saved, but I think that what baptism represents is also in play when somebody becomes, when someone is born again. The, the baptism depicts the washing away of our sins by Jesus who went into the grave and then comes out of the grave. And what he is saying here is that unless you are cleansed, you cannot be saved. Your sins have to be washed away. And of course, as Christians, we understand how that happened, that Jesus died on the cross in our place. He who knew no sin became sin in our place. And our iniquities, our punishment was laid on him, and now we receive his reward. But if all we ever do is understand Christianity is that something was taken away, that's just as silly as if we sterilized a jar but never filled it with a good thing. Christianity is more than just having had the bad thing taken out of our lives. It's also true that something has been added, and that's why he says the Spirit here. You must be born again by water and Spirit. You must have be cleansed of your sins, but you must also gain the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You have to gain the power and the capacity to live a new life. You have to be filled, not just emptied. And he also mentions the wind here. We've already talked about this a little bit, but just as the wind itself is not visible, its effect is clearly visible. Yesterday, as the storm was blowing into Washburn, where I live, over on the other side of the river, uh, the, the wind came first, and the trees were going crazy, and it was uh, fixing to take this uh, screen tent thing in our yard and just take it down into the brook. I was looking at it like it might just go away. But of course, you can't see the wind but you see the effect of the wind. I don't know where that wind originated. I don't know when it first began. I don't know the extent to which it's gonna go. But I did see the effect of it when it came into my yard. And I think that here is an important truth about Christians generally, is that what God has done in us will have a visible effect. It's an inner reality that finds outward expression. This is why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let them see your good works. That's the effect of the wind. That's the effect of the inner illumination of the Holy Spirit finding outward expression in a new way of living, a new transformation. And so when, we, when he talks about these three things, water, spirit, wind, he is talking about the cleansing that comes, he is talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit, I believe, and he is talking about the effect that that will have on a believer's life, that it will result in transformation. In other words, becoming a Christian is not just giving mental assent to certain truths. Remember, Satan believes every word of the Bible, and he hates it. The Pharisees rightly conclude that Jesus is from God, 
and they're opposed to him. So it's not enough just to give mental assent to these truths, but that they show up in our lives in a transformative way. We embrace the truth of it, we love the truth of it, and we live in the truth of it. All these things are important to see and understand. And then he finishes with this. He, he, he throws this verse in, and it's a bit strange. I don't think it would have made a total amount of sense to Nicodemus. Maybe it doesn't to you this morning either. It says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus finishes with Nicodemus with another head-scratcher of a statement. Nicodemus certainly understood the reference to Moses holding up the serpent in the wilderness. That was probably better known to him than it is to most Christians today. Maybe you're not familiar with that story. You can look it up yourself sometime in Numbers 21. Basically, Numbers 21, if you go there and look up the story, God's people, while they're wandering in the desert, start really complaining a lot. Again, they do this kind of thing a lot. And God, to chasten them, sends serpents into the camp and they start biting people. People are even dying. And this is happening so much that they come to Moses and they say, help, (laughs) we're dying from these snakes that God has sent to chasten us. So Moses goes to God and God says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to make us a serpent. You're going to put it on a stick. You're going to hold it up. Everybody who comes and looks at that will be healed. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to be put up, when he says that, the Son of Man must be lifted up in the same way that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He is saying this, that people are dying because of their disobedience, because their sinful waywardness. This is why sin entered the world. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. That's Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23. And then he says this, that because of that, Death is a reality. We're all afraid of death, but God, who is the great enemy of death, has sent me in, and I'm going to need to be lifted up like that serpent so that everybody who comes to me can know salvation, just as they did in the desert when they came and looked at the snake on the pole. And this is a reference, of course, to his coming crucifixion, his lifting up, being lifted up onto the cross. And that's what we're going to really study next week, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. This is really Jesus in all of this brings it around to that great moment where he's going to lay out how Nicodemus can see and enter the kingdom of God by believing in what Jesus did on his, would do on his behalf. But I've talked a lot this morning about how unless you're born again you can't see and you can't enter. And maybe if you are on the outside, those statements fill you with despair. (laughs) I can't see and I can't enter. Why am I even listening to you? What what do I do with that? How do I act on the information that I'm helpless? Helpless people can't act. Are you calling me to just lay here like a sack of goo? (laughs) and hope that someday the wind will blow in my direction. I want you to know this. If you are at all drawn to Jesus as Nicodemus was, 
These words that he spoke to Nicodemus were not meant to discourage him, but to, but to rightly orient him as the source of his hope. Jesus in all of this is saying, look away from yourself as your own savior. If you are drawn to Jesus as a savior, if you know you have a sin problem, you know you need a savior, you know you need to be saved, and you've come to Jesus either online or here in the sanctuary this morning because you've got questions. Your soul is troubled. Jesus would say to you, I think as he says to Nicodemus, don't try and save yourself. That's really what this is all about. Nicodemus as a man, his way of approaching God, seeking God's favor, is that he will earn it by being good. And Jesus says to him, unless you're born again, you can't see, you can't enter, you can't get there the way you've been trying to approach God. So I'm not trying to discourage you from being active in pursuing God. If he's drawing you, follow. If you feel your need for a Savior this morning, embrace him as your Savior. Say, Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. That's right and that's good. In fact, if you are being drawn by him, you can't do anything but. It's just a very strong pull on your life. You're feeling drawn to him. Think about the pressures that were at work within Nicodemus to risk professional ruin by going to Jesus in this way. He just had to go talk to Jesus. And maybe you're feeling similarly this morning. Maybe you're feeling drawn to him. You know your need. You know you need a Savior. And if that's you, I'm going to pray a very simple prayer this morning. There's no magic in the words. It's not like if you get every syllable just right, it's real, and if you get it slightly wrong. Jesus looks at your heart. That's really all that matters. And if you're somebody this morning, whether online or here in the sanctuary with us, and you want to become a Jesus follower, you want to know the security that comes from belonging to him, you want to become born again, you can take this prayer I'm going to pray. You can make it your own. You can pass from death to life and become a new creation today. I would only ask this. Don't keep it a secret. Remember when Jesus said about the wind blowing and you see its effects? Eventually, Nicodemus would go public. He would stand up tall in the Sanhedrin, the very lion's den, and he would say, hey, we, we need to give this guy a hearing and he would boldly go with Joseph of Arimathea and be part of his grave ritual. He became a Jesus follower visibly, publicly. Don't keep your new commitment as a follower of Jesus private or secret. Tell me, tell another Christian, become involved in a church. Let me pray this simple prayer right now. If you want to become a follower of Jesus this morning, you can make it your prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I know that I am a sinner. God, I was born in sin, born to parents who were sinners. I was born steeped in the original sin of Adam. And God, even if that were not enough, I have committed plenty of sins myself. There are things I have done that were against your law. I have loved things that you have hated, and I have hated things that you love. Father, I am guilty. And I believe your word when it says that the wages of sin is death. I've earned that. I've deserved it. But I also believe, amazingly, wonderfully, 
that you are offering a free gift of salvation. It's a gift that I could never earn. I know that. But God, you have stirred within me a mysterious growing desire to be yours. I believe in Jesus. I don't know where that came from. I don't know where this is going. But I see your movement in my heart, God. I see the wind blowing in there and I feel it. And God, I just come to you and I drop here and I just say, I want to be yours. I need a savior. And I put all of my hope on what Jesus did for me. That you so loved me that you sent Jesus to die in my place so that I could have eternal life. God, thank you for that wonderful gift. I believe it and I embrace it. And God, I want to live the rest of my life as one of yours. Help me to do that. Give me the Holy Spirit. Wash me clean of my sins. And God, help me to live from this day until my last as yours. In Jesus' name, amen.